1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA member FDIC.
2: If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023, where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes, without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com, and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Howdy, this is Gary Lee Connor, also known as the Microdot from the old days and the Screaming Trees, and you're listening to Whatever Never Mind.
0: I'd like to welcome to the program uh, Gary Lee Connor of the Screaming Trees. As I found oh, out about a minute ago, it's not Glenn Lee Connor. Uh, yeah. a long story, we won't get into that. Uh, but uh, Gary, thanks for coming on the program.
2: Oh, no problem. How's it going?
0: Not too bad. Where Where am I talking to you from? You're in the Central Time yeah. Zone.
2: Yeah, I'm in Texas, uh, San Angelo, Texas. I'm in the middle of West Texas, the middle of nowhere. So,
0: how long you been I, in uh, Texas, uh, boy? About
2: Twenty years. I, I moved after I moved out to well. I, I met my wife. Uh, actually I had a for show, but <laughs> in uh, New York and I sort of moved out there for a while until like, I don't know. It's after the band broke up. I, yeah. We moved here, but I was living back and forth between New York and Seattle for about five years. Then finally I've been here and haven't gone for 20 years. So.
0: You know, I'm up in St. Paul, Minnesota and it's muggy and yeah. hot. What's it like down there? Oh uh, no? yeah.
2: It's the, yeah, 104 and pretty <laughs> humid too. It, It's kind of dry here sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's 100 degrees, like over 100 degrees every day of the summer, basically, in San Angelo. So, you get used to it. It's cold in my house, so... That's all that matters. Yeah, Uh,
0: You know, give me a little bit about how the band Screaming Trees came together. You don't have to get too deep into it, but just kind of a a short version of how things happened there.
2: Yeah, well, we were all from a small town, 100 miles uh, east of Seattle, Ellensburg, Washington. And um, Part of us, like so. I was older. I was like few uh, years older than uh, Van, my brother, who's a bass player. And Mark landing was kind of in the middle. We had a five-year age spread. I was like, I guess, how old was I when we started? Like '85 I was about 23, and the other guys were like just out of high school. Mark was kind of in between there. Lannigan. So uh, the Van Mark Pickerell drummer and Mark Lannigan met up in high school, and then we. uh so they we already had a band me and my brother and mark pickerel and they were kind of looking to start a new band and i uh started playing with them and the only place we had to play was my bedroom so my mom like forced them to let me in the band because they <laughs> they, they didn't want me in the band because i was trying to start a new band with lanigan so and eventually i, I started playing bass for a while and then i switched to guitar and then uh you know, we were, Ellensburg was the middle of nowhere. We had no idea what there was any kind of music. There was a some music scene in Seattle. We knew nothing about it. You know, we were just like, uh sitting on the middle of Washington, not knowing what was going on. We just got together just for fun. And then uh, we started playing some original songs so that I'd been writing some stuff on a four-track uh, cassette I just got. And that kind of turned into recording a demo, which turned out to be our very first uh Thing we put out called Other Worlds. It was released on SST a few years later. <laughs> then we got signed to uh, SST after we put our, our first record uh, with uh, sort of by ourselves, but with the help of guys in Ellensburg, Velvetone Records. And then we put out, uh, whoa, three, four records on SST and toured the US and kind of got. Uh, Fairly well known underground-wise and college radio and stuff, mm-hmm. but the people in Seattle were kind of like, "Who the hell are these guys on SST Records?" Because SST was like a really big, like, punk rock indie right. label that was really prestigious. It's Greg and, like, cool.
0: and Black Flag. Yeah. That,
2: yeah. yeah, well, actually, that was some of the first stuff we played was Black Flag covers. You know, we played Black Flag and and uh, Black Flag <laughs> and uh, what else? Um, I'm sorry, it's Jimi Hendrix covers and Cream. It was a 60s. Okay. So it was like punk rock and 60s like combined. That was kind of our earlier sound. It was like a you know, psychedelic and punk rock kind of mixed together.
0: You got quite so, the zoo going on there.
2: Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, my dog decided to bark. Now, was why.
0: it? No, do you have a dog? Did I hear a
2: cat too? Yeah, I have two dogs and four cats. Yeah, right on. Nacho is the most famous one on Facebook. People see pictures of Nacho all the time. <laughs> and then I have uh, two dogs, a golden retriever. Uh, lab.
0: Yeah. Hey, the uh, the town you guys then grew up in, well, uh, well, I'm sorry, you, what was the name of it again?
2: Ellensburg. It's How right big of a city are we state. talking here? Uh, not too big. Uh, 13,000 people. It was like uh, half college and half uh, rodeo cow town it had the rodeo was the most famous thing in town and um it was you know and plus it was like over the mountains from seattle so going to seattle uh-huh. was always kind of a pain especially in the winter because it was like snow on the pass and stuff so you know but but i never when i was a kid like when i was in high school i never went to seattle at all then finally, by the time uh, the mid 80s, we started going over some shows and stuff, you know, mostly big arena type shows at first. But yeah. then later, some, uh, you know, in fact, we went saw Black Flag there. Like uh, when we first started the band, uh, we were at the in 1985 they played at the Thunderbird Gym in Seattle. A lot of people. Actually, there were not that many people there, but a lot of people who I know knew later would have that, that show mm-hmm. um, was like 40, 50, maybe 100 people. You know, you think it would be packed, but it wasn't. Um, so it was kind of weird because, like, you know, a couple of years later, we got signed to SST. We saw Greg, we saw Greg Kin play, and suddenly we got signed mm-hmm. to his label a couple of years later. So that all came about just because we, uh, Steve Fisk, our producer, of our, uh, who lived who was in, in Ellensburg at the studio there, he uh, knew some people from California who were associated with SST. And uh, when we went down there, they saw us play, and we put out, like, a record already. And they were, Greg Ginn was, he was really interested in, like, our very first thing, Other Worlds, which was really a lot, not different, but it was really, you know, we never even played live. we have been together, like, a couple of months, and we landing and didn't really know how to sing yet. You know, he hadn't really <laughs> sang before we started the band. It was just kind of, okay, I'll sing. He didn't know he had such a great voice.
0: That's pretty man. So if you look man. at
2: Other Worlds compared to all our other stuff, I mean, I, I like it still, but it's just, you know it doesn't sound quite like, uh, especially Lannigan's it's voice, you know, it's a little more, it's really like sort of a garage rock influenced. Um, yeah, kind of for thing. sure. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, not but, to sidetrack too far, but like I asked about the population cause I grew up in kind of a small town away from like a, uh, right. a, a bigger city. And I, you know, I was also a guitar player. Was, was there a music store in town? Like how did you keep, you know, drumsticks, strings and that nature?
2: Yeah, there was one small music store. I, I got some of like, my early guitars. most of the guitars I got though were like pawn shop guitars mm-hmm. like when I was in high school and stuff. I started buying like cheap guitars from pawn shops. I had like one of those silver tone uh amp and <laughs> the ones, you know, those yeah. silver That was a cool guitar. I sold it stupidly. But at first like, I only bought it for twenty five dollars. Well all right I back mean, so then you $25. could actually get a deal like that, you know? Well, yeah, the 80s were an amazing time for, like, gear. It's like, because oh, everyone was trying to get rid of, oh, this crap sucks, oh, digital stuff, so, you know, so you could get, like, you know, set box organs, amazing guitars, and amps, and effects, and, you know, he used to have all sorts of stuff like that, you know, for really cheap. Now, stuff is, like... Either destroyed or massively expensive. Exactly. (laughs) Or both. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, both. Yeah, both.
0: Well, uh, you you mentioned SST. Your first major label record with with Epic was Uncle Anesthesia. And Chris Cornell produced that. Now, was that uh, your (laughs) guys' idea or the labels?
2: I think it was, no, it was more our idea because we uh, we got signed to SST. You know, I kind of got we did a lot of stuff on SST and we toured a lot. We we're kind of like, okay, what are we going to do now? So it's kind of like, well, maybe we'll just break up or maybe we'll try to get on a major label. Cause some bands from SST, like the meat Puppets, had discussed sign. So, um, we got a manager, Susan Silver, who's manager, sound guard, okay. and, and change. And, uh, also Chris Cornell's girlfriend too. I think he married her later. You know, it's divorced. correct? But it, it, anyway, um, she helped us get on label. And then, after we were getting ready to record that record we were looking for producer and you know since a lot of stuff in music was like who you know and you know people connections and you know they're like well we have terry date who produced uh, loud and love produce your record you know mm-hmm. and he was more of a metal producer and that was sort of the thing was like well chris has worked with him and you know soundgarden is more me- even though not, not really a metal band it more much more metal than we were not oh, absolutely. even remotely metal you know <laughs> so kind of a, a uh, go between you know was the idea for Chris to be there and you know, he, he did that some and we had a lot of fun with him though and he did some you know stuff like uh back vocals and things like that did
0: did you guys know him well beforehand or is this kind of the introduction
2: uh, well I mean, no we knew him before cuz like um he they, they played in uh, I think have we played i can't remember if we played with him before mark pickerel knew him and he actually helped them get their um that uh ultra mega okay on sst he mm, was okay. he like oh, forget about that he was like sort of instrumental in introducing them to uh, sst for that record because you know they were sort of like well what i think they were kind of working on getting signed to a label but they're kind of well you know what? indie credibility maybe or something which sst definitely had so um yeah, so that was kind of what the idea of Cornell was, was the go between the, the metal producer and the guy who was on Soundgarden who he had produced before, you know, who wasn't.
0: Yeah, and he had no yeah. real, like, producing credit prior, correct?
2: Oh, uh, I don't think so. No. I mean, you know, producing is a weird thing. I Me and co produced what was that? The uh, beat happening. I don't know if it would be happening from Olympia, mm-hmm. but uh one of their second record what was a jamboree. I don't know what we did. We were in the studio, I played on a few things and like made a couple of comments. I don't know. Because you know, there's you know, there's engineers and there's producers. Yeah and uh, engineers usually are very technical, and can you know, and some engineers are also producers, and some producers are engineers. A lot of producers are just musicians. Then there's, you know, other kind of producers that are just like, not necessarily musicians, but they, well, like when we did our last record, George Acoulis, he was like the most producer producer that we ever worked with because he he was like old time '60s producer, or '70s producer, where he came in and like worked on the songs, like arranged, helped to arrange them brought in a lot of different instruments and stuff like that. But, you know, Cornell was more kind of like our friend that was in the studio and uh, offering suggestions about what to do. Okay. Um, they had to leave, I remember, towards the end of the session because uh, they were going on tour. Soundgarden was going on tour. So I think we were in the studio like, about six weeks. For that thing, so.
0: Well, coming off um, that record and going into Sweet Oblivion, what, was there any special mindset you guys had as a band, like what you were going to try to do with this next record? Uh,
2: well, we'd gone through, you know, it was interesting with Epic the Records, um, you know, we got signed before any of the Seattle thing was big at all. It was like, it's kind of big in the underground mm-hmm. indie stuff, you know, like Nirvana, Mudhoney, were all like starting to get a lot of press, you know, like and they were like the M- NME and Melody Maker, like Darlings, like in England, you know, Everett True wrote a lot about them and stuff. So, you know, we were kind of a little bit Involved in that because we were, you know, had moved. A lot of us had moved to Seattle at that point um, in 1990, 91. And by the time we did sweet of Living, we were all living over there. And also, we had uh, drummer problems. You know, Mark Pickerel quit the band right when we were recording Uncle Anesthesia, our first drummer. Then we had a couple other drummers. Uh, Guy Sean Hollister drummed with us for a while, and Dan Peters from Mudhoney played with us on a tour. Then we that was when we came back from. Tour for Uncle Anesthesia in the middle of 1991 when we decided, mm-hmm. well, what we're going to do? we you know, um, Mark, we hadn't really got together to write songs before the very maybe like our very first couple first record we wrote stuff before, but mostly I'd been just like writing stuff and giving tapes to Mark and he changed lyrics or whatever he wanted, you know. So it was kind of like a collaboration, editing kind of relationship, but. We uh, we're all over in Seattle, so we're all together again. And we got Barrett Barrett Martin playing drums with us, which was kind of interesting because we we kind of were moving a slightly different direction, just not consciously, but more of a like a you know maybe classic rock type of direction as opposed to psychedelic punk rock kind of thing. okay. And um, Barrett seemed to really fit the bill for that, you know, as opposed well, to Piccaro played more like Keith Moon, I think uh, Barrett played more like John Bonham or something. Mm, that's a good person. You know, heavy groove type of thing. So, uh, you know, in fact, it was funny because we played, uh, the first song we played so we'd written in the summer of 1991 in rehearsal we first played with dan peters was the first song on the album shadow of the season and peters was kind of like i don't get this you know he was kind of like <laughs> i don't get this song at all really but barrett was like the barrett like picked up like that it was suddenly like yeah this is gonna work you know this is the direction we're going in and this drummer is definitely gonna work so um yeah so we spent that whole um fall of 1991 writing songs together for the first time in a long time and rehearsing the songs that we hardly ever rehearsed before that. And we actually got together <laughs> and, uh, rehearsed stuff and, you know, played through things a lot just to see how they work different ways. And, uh, you know, in the middle of this though, like in the fall, suddenly Nirvana hit big, mm. you know, and grunge was suddenly big. And you know? I mean, we went to the, uh, well, I remember, uh, you know their record was coming out, and I remember going to barbecue and hearing. Uh, you know they had barbecues in Seattle all the time. All people at bands. It was Dan Peter's house. And Chris was there with. What were tape. they serving? What up, uh, bar Yeah, barbecue something probably corn. And, okay. I don't know. <laughs> hamburgers. I or- asked
0: the tough questions here, Gary
2: that's okay yeah <laughs> that's okay. so like uh, yeah well uh, he had a tape of uh, smells like teen spirit and I was a, a big Nirvana fan I really liked him so I was really interested in what was coming up. would this have been
0: before time. it came out
2: what uh, it was right about the time you know it was okay. like probably coming out in like a couple weeks or something all right cool. cool. it was the end of August probably 91 uh, and uh, and I heard it and I was like man I really liked it but I was kind I never would have thought it would be a hit. It seemed really obscure to me, more obscure than a lot of Nirvana songs, because I heard a lot of the songs that were on oh, Nevermind, because they'd been playing them live for like, you know, months. Like, I'd seen them at least a couple times when I played, like, uh, probably like In Bloom and uh, Lithium and, you know, stuff like Sliver. You know, that was much more poppy than, like, then mm. suddenly smelled like Transfer. It's got these obscure lyrics and it did have a cool groove, but, you know, i was like i really like i said i really liked it but i never thought of that but then like two months later at uh the nirvana show in seattle at the paramount on halloween it was like things were suddenly you know they sold three hundred thousand records i remember we were all everybody and all the bands were out in front of the lobby of the paramount hanging out including nirvana talking that was like the last time i think that happened that was the i think that was a day that the old Seattle scene ended hmm. and the new one started it was like halloween on 1991 the nirvana show the paramount i think that just came out in video about that that was a really good show Whatever they're trying to film video a video for probably teen spirit which i don't think they used i think that's what they said if i remember right maybe it was for another song then. but whatever it was they used it later for the live stuff but that was like the you know the uh backdrop of what we were suddenly wow it was like we're part of this big scene we never meant to be and we didn't really sound like the other bands but uh none of know, the bands got,
0: really sounded alike though i mean it's, it's
2: no yeah there's different kind of band you know some of them were more metal some of them were more pop some of them were more you know, 60 ish like us. You know, there was, yeah, a lot of different things. I mean, you know, people were just doing what they wanted to. It mm-hmm. didn't really have anything to do with, like, I want to be like this band. You know, that was kind of like the LA hair metal scene. It was like, we want to sound, you know, they all tried to sound alike, I guess, because they all did sound alike. They yeah. all sound like the, like, <laughs> pretend like the New York Dolls playing Van Halen or something like that. You know yeah, I, mean? I get it. <laughs> so, it definitely,
0: towards the end of the 80s, there was just basically like a, a kind of a. I don't know. They throw all these band throw the five yeah. bands in a blender, and this is what you get. Uh.
2: Yeah, exactly. And they were all the same. You know, it was really, that was a cool. cool thing. to see it seems a lot of, all oh, the bands are different. They were just all doing their own thing because, not because they wanted to be famous, just because they love playing music, you mm-hmm. know, and wanted to play somewhere and wanted to put out records and stuff. And, you know, they were already doing that when it wasn't like they needed the major labels to get big. It's just that, you know, whenever there's something they smell something brewing the major labels show up and this yeah. time it actually actually
0: happened to grunge a little bit too it got kind of stale but
2: uh yeah as far oh, as yeah, release, throwing
0: cool. so much product out there that wasn't that good um, well
2: it's just because what happened then was every label in the whole world came to Seattle and they signed anybody they could donate, you yeah. know. And, like <laughs> some of the bands that weren't as good got signed. And then they were going all over the world, you know, trying to sign other bands. And, you know, then you got you know, like the second generation grunge bands like Stone Temple Pilots who at first I was kinda of like, man, I didn't really like them at first because I thought they got like one song size on the Kavana, one that's like Pearl Jam,
1: mm-hmm.
2: one that's <laughs> like uh, you know, Allison Chains. But uh, they actually their their next record after the first one was much more like oh okay I guess they're not just a grunge band. Sure. They were like more interesting. But there were a lot of bands, like Bush, uh, what Seether. That was like probably a fifth generation grunge band. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know about that. That happened in the '60s too. And you know, some of the bands I love were just copycat like bands like the Naz, like Tom grungren's first band, you know. I mm. love they one of my biggest influences. I uh, and uh but they were you know, probably back then people were like, oh they're just like hope and cream and the Beatles or you know. I get but, it. But or the monkeys, you know. <laughs> <That's> the, <biggest laughs> the, the monkeys. I always loved the monkeys, but you know, they were a manufactured band. So I don't know it was quite that bad with the grunge, but uh I got like close. TV too. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're talking about the the making of the record. Then, what was the band like? Were you guys all kind of like a unified front, or like a all for one kind of deal? What was the vibe like?
2: Well, we always have problems getting along. I mean, you know, I mean, especially me and Lannigan, because um, I don't I don't really know why we always had trouble getting along. But you know, I don't know if you read his book. But,
0: Not yet. I got an excerpt. I yeah. do have a question about it, but uh, it's it's yeah, it's, it's but anyway. Okay.
2: But yeah, so um, yeah, we, you know, Van and I were brothers, so there was that, which was good and bad. You know, it was like sure. being family. It was like we were a dysfunctional family. That's what we always compared ourselves to. You know, basically. <laughs> so you know, we weren't like we weren't like Pearl Jam, like 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 a cover. T- like oh, you know, they're holding their hands up like together. Like uh, you know that cover, <laughs> oh, right? Was like, yeah, yeah. We weren't. Like, it wasn't like that. It was like you know. It was like bunch of guys who somehow accidentally like got signed to SST but really love to make music and we're trying to make the best music we possibly could, you know, and um, somehow you know, we got involved in the Seattle scene with grunge and that just took it to another level, you know, if they had been for that it would have just been with SST bands, you know I've, I would love to scream the trees, you know, if I still I do like old scream trees stuff, but I mean like if I never if I wasn't in the band I would, you know, be man, that stuff is great. I would have been a huge fan, I would or if I like, you know, was like the same stuff I do now and I was like younger, I would like discovering the scream trees like I did like the thirteen floor elevators and the seeds or something like that, you know. That's the way I look at the cool. band in respect. But uh yeah, we so, you know, the thing was by the time we had finished the tour for Uncle Anesthesia, it was kind of like, well, you know, Epic's going to sign us, or the Epic signed us, but are they going to do a second record? And they did want to do a second record, and we didn't sell, we did sell quite a few, you know, for for a band like us, like we think we sold some like 50,000 copies of Uncle Anesthesia, which was comparable to what a lot of the indie bands were selling, like Nirvana was probably selling maybe maybe more than that on SubHop, but something like that. You know, 50,000 records is a lot, if you're a indie if you're on a major label not so much but it's for a first record that you know they're trying to promote they looked at it you know it was like well maybe we'll make a step up on the next record so they did want to do the record and we got it all lined up to go out to new york and record with uh john and yellow and don fleming as a producer and yellow is the, pro- the engineer and uh fleming was producer i look at that more that was more like even though it says fleming a producer it was much more of a team Okay I, I would they should have production credit even though you know because is more like the musician guy, although he did have a lot more input I think than, than like maybe Chris Cornell did because he'd done it before a few times, like produced bands and continued doing it after sort of oblivion.
0: And, I mean, how did it compare? Was the was the budget bigger for this record, I guess, is kind of where I'm going?
2: Uh, yeah. Probably, I don't know it was that much bigger than Uncle Anesthesia. I mean, Uncle Anesthesia we did at London Bridge, which is where a lot of Seattle bands mm-hmm. like Soundgarden recorded. And it was a good studio. You know, it was uh, probably the first time we actually you that. Well, it was weird because Velvetone was in Ellensburg where we recorded all our SST records, was nice but the equipment was like it has had a little eight track okay that we did all our early records on the eight track but and then finally we recorded the buzz factory with jack and dino we got i think either a 16 or 24 tracks. so you know but um equipment wise london bridge where we did uncle last was like a lot more fancier than uh <clears throat> than anything that we had done but you know we, the one we went to in uh new york was just kind of a wasn't crummy but it was just a you know functioning studio called baby monsters down close in the north part of the Grange village and uh they had a lot of good you know good equipment and stuff that we were able to use and we just spent were over there about a month i think okay recording and you know we were pretty pretty well prepared for it except for the fact that we had all these songs since we've been working together we had a lot of songs like probably about half of them that only had like lyrics that we didn't like or lyrics that were kind of halfway done, you know, cause Mark was more instead of me like writing a full song, giving it to Mark and he'd like edit it or, you know, change the lyrics how he wanted to. It was like, we had songs that maybe Mark had been kind of singing something, but he didn't know, you know, it may be like a song with the title with a bunch of words that you don't want to use and you want to change it, you know? Okay, So um, when we got our basic tracks done, mm-hmm. it was Mark's turn to sing, yeah. and um, he disappeared like in a. He, it's weird because the first half of the band, he was totally sober. Then we had his band wreck. He, in high school, he was like a drunkard, hell-y, and you know, always in trouble. But then nice. he cleaned up for some reason right about the time he started the band. He was sober for several years until um, about 1991 we were on tour with uh, for the uncle assia album we had a fan wreck and right after that, they started drinking again and it didn't stop then later you started doing other stuff like dope you know heroin stuff but for that year or two we were doing sweet oblivion it was actually probably really important to the record that he was drinking because suddenly he was like really social and he wanted to hang out which he hadn't been before and he wasn't later. When he was chewing heroin, um, and you're talking
0: that, just kind of like, like a, a band kind of vibe, right? Like, to,
2: yeah, that was the first. That was probably the first the only time we did have a band kind of vibe. It's like go to the guy's house, write songs, just hang out, have fun. You know, that was what was happening. And uh, you know, wow, uh, that's
0: cool.
1: By
2: the time we got to New York in the studio, though, and he's definitely been drinking a lot, and it was wearing on him. And anyway, he disappeared for about couple days uh bender showed up uh ready to sing but uh having a huge hangover had us leave the studio but he in three days he sang everything and i don't know if he'd been writing this stuff lyrics before or what but so we heard it we're like oh my god i can't believe it. it's amazing you know i, mean, I think the best thing mark ever did was on "Suitable."
0: That's how so, the the rat lead singer did it too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> really, yeah, I don't know. Somehow he managed to do it and so that was like, okay, we we'll save the record. So it's you guys weren't you weren't there at all when,
0: when he was doing the vocal tracks then, huh?
2: No. Yeah, by that point we learned to stay the fuck away from the studio. Mark's saying. it's like don't get close to the studio when he's singing. Yeah, I mean in the early days I think we were uh in the studio when he was singing i remember on some track i can't remember what it was it was on one of the sst records there was like some was supposed to be a scream at the end of one of the songs that i'd done or something and he wouldn't he didn't want to scream but finally he just did the scream and i could still hear him being mad when he did it but it wasn't a great scream but it was like he was just because he was pissed at it so every time i hear that what was that in the forest or something <laughs> can't remember if that's what it was but Right on. Yeah, so we definitely didn't go to the station <laughs> <I was> sweet. <saying. laughs> oh, that's you know, cool. that's the thing. He could be the grumpiest, nastiest guy in the world or the nicest guy in the world, and fun to be around. It's just you know hard to tell. <laughs> you gotta be always on your guard.
0: Let me ask you something because um, I heard this record when it came out. I mean, like yep. I was uh, like uh, second year of college when when grunge really broke. So, I, you know, this album was yep. like in that second wave. Perfect timing <clears throat> from for me as far as looking back. But um, yep. this record didn't hang with me, and so getting record uh, prepared for the episode that we recorded where we talk about it. I was blown away. I was like, this is exactly the kind of thing I would have wanted to listen to then. It's, it's a great record. Oh, Where I'm going with that is that the single soundtrack came out a few months ahead of the, the album uh, of yours, yeah. and it had that song, and, and it was released as a single on it. Right. My personal theory, maybe you can tell me if, if, if you thought that at the time, was I actually think it probably stole some of your thunder as far as the album, because you know someone like me might look at the two things and like, which one do I want? I mean, I really like that screaming trees song, but I love. I already know Pearl Jam, Allison Chains, and and Soundgarden. Yeah. They're all on here. You know what I mean? Uh, did, yeah. Was there any talk at the time that like maybe it, it actually hurt the sales, or am I just got my uh,
2: head? Up my well, ass? We get, it actually came out right at the time the record came out, so that's possible the, the sales thing because people might not have bought of Blue because of that. But on the other hand, way more people heard of us Mm -hmm. because of that, and some of the tours we did later uh, that year. So I don't know. That's it's probably a double edged sword. I can see that happening. You know, it's like we weren't even supposed to be on it, and there was some like political junk going on and record label type stuff, and we managed to somehow pull a coup and get on it. But then they didn't give us as much royalties or something, and like we got an MTV buzz clip, but we only got half the plays because like that Paul Westerberg song. Got the other half of the toys, so you know it was it was like not quite like oh yeah we're gonna promote this totally. It was kind of like yeah we're gonna promote it. Totally, so, you know,
0: like <laughs> oh well, that. Um, let's talk about that song just a little bit because you yeah. know one of the, one of the things that I commented when because we also did the the singles soundtrack mm-hmm. is on the list too. So this song yeah. came up then first, and I, and my comment right. to the guy I was le- doing the show with was, "This is the perfect song." I mean, there's just yeah. everything is done right here, and, and that just came out today. So when I was yeah. recording the episode for Sweet Oblivion, the guy who I was recording that with he had not he had no choice he used the exact same terminology so yeah what a beautiful tune how did it come together
2: well van came up with it it was like we worked on it a little bit but mainly the bass player yeah my brother yeah he (laughs) wrote some really good songs he (laughs) wrote as many songs as i did but that was his him and lanigan had gone over to ellensburg when we we were living in seattle at that point and they went over ellensburg and They had to take an acid or something, and it has something to do with the acid trip that Van had. I mean, like nearly lost you because he was like on acid or something. I don't know. That's how the song started. Van brought it back and you know, it was it was like, you know, I can't remember what the verses were like, but the chorus was like it is. And we worked on it and I helped them a little with the verses. And then we it was kind of interesting. We we really knew that it was something different and that could be a single because we kept playing it over. We'd like actually get in rehearsal and like Play it for like 20 minutes. This is the groove of it and stuff. We never did anything like that with a song before. It was kind of weird because, um, you know, usually it was just like Mark wouldn't even come to rehearsal and like maybe we'd get together and play the songs with our, you know, without the singer. And then, or maybe we'd even just give a demo tape to our drummer, Mark Pickerel, and say, learn the song, we'll go to the studio, and record it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but suddenly we're rehearsing, especially that song, a lot. And it was, you know, Kind of that funky groove, different than anything we'd really done. I guess it doesn't seem like it now, but it kind of did at the time. And uh, so, yeah, we kind of like had an idea that, that would be the first single and, and stuff like that. So,
0: um, uh, you got that kind of cool little pseudo lead that kind of repeats itself through that too. Is that all
2: you?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like yeah. it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it was really fairly easy. I don't know that solo is like really. It probably sounds hard, but it's just like all thirds up on the neck.
0: Well, I do have one question of curiosity: Why was "For Celebrations Past" listed as a bonus track, basically on every release?
2: Yeah, oh, because it had to do with vinyl. The, the 1992 was pretty much the year that the major labels decided that vinyl was dead. It doesn't seem like it was that early, but it was. Yeah, uh, And they released the record on vinyl, but they released it with no cover. It was a black cover, and it was called the One Foot in the Grave Vinyl Edition. And there was only room for... I don't know. I actually, I don't wonder if the re-releases had... I it's know, on the, I the, the
0: current review. vinyl you can buy.
2: Is it on the current vinyl? Yeah. yeah, okay, that's cool. Yeah, Um. That the idea, I guess, that it couldn't fit. Either it couldn't fit on there, or... They just want to have something extra to put on the CD, so people might buy both of them. I'm not sure which. But it's <laughs> anyway, a, it's, it's a
0: song on the record. Usually, the bonus is like the last one. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I know. I don't. I don't really know what prompted them to do that particular. But that was why. Part of the reason was because they were putting it on vinyl without a real cover, which kind of sucked. Later on, we got you know uh, some other vinyl came out. Well, like the U. I think UK england had vinyl for it so at least there were vinyl copies you know um but yeah they decided vinyl was dead and they were just going for cd so yeah in fact they had the cut the cover they just put a cd cover inside the wrapping of the uh vinyl. <laughs> this exists yeah. yeah you can see i've seen them on uh on uh ebay before yeah
0: uh, I'm officially going to add that to my list of things to look for when I'm yeah, one vinyl One Foot hunting.
2: in the Grave Vinyl Edition. That's what it's called. Yeah, nice way to, like, you know, call the fucking so, record as black and uh, call One Foot in the Grave.
0: Say that all the way through. So it's Screaming Trees, Sweet Oblivion, One Foot in the Grave Vinyl Edition?
2: Yeah, I believe that's what it was. Something real close to that, so. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. That I'm is... Black, you know, it's like Spinal Tap with the... It's black. <laughs> like Not more black. Like, yeah. yeah right for releasing a record on a block. block. (laughs) luckily that one did a lot better so it wasn't
0: well that didn't come up in any of my research Uh, that's amazing um yeah butterfly is a standout track for me i something about that line i'm sick and i want to go home and and the way mark sings it is just
2: i mean it's not
0: a pretty sentence when you read it but it sounds so beautiful the way he sings it
2: right yeah i mean that's an example like i think I think pretty much all that like i had that song and it was just sort of the verse or i mean the uh, the chorus is the butterfly thing but it was like slightly different lyrics i think the only words were like butterfly okay and uh, something else it's not you know, that he he wrote all the other stuff and we came up with a new uh, chorus. But that's pretty much mostly almost all his lyrics except just butterflies <laughs> uh so yeah that's an example of, like the lyrics that he wrote
0: um we've talked about a couple what are some of your favorite tracks on the album
2: oh my turn of trust i really like winter song that one got mm-hmm. written right before we um went in the studio because we like lannigan you know this is back when he was drinking days he'd like show up he showed up at six o'clock in the morning at my house we were gonna leave a couple days later to go to new york and he's like trying to get me to drink beer it's like i don't want to drink beer at six in the morning it's like <laughs> i tried to pour it out He's like no you gotta drink it and then I can't remember why, but we called Van and Barrett, and we all end up driving around Seattle. And Van's really shitty old sob doing something, and I don't even know what we were doing, why we were driving around. But the whole day was just kind of crazy because, like, waking up six o'clock, trying to have them to drink beer, and driving around with the whole band in the fucking little car, which was like totally atypical. You know, what, what kind of beer happened. would
0: it have been? Do you remember?
2: Uh probably some shitty like Budweiser. R- Rainer. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think... I didn't much. I don't know. Okay. I wasn't a director. So, yeah, I'm right here. Um, so, yeah, the, and the last thing I remember about that landing in that day was you dropped him off at, like, a strip club downtown because there was some porn actress he, like, was supposedly appearing there. That was, like, the end <laughs> of that day. And then I went home and, you know, like typical, I'd like to play my guitar and I was talking to uh, my, well, girlfriend, wife, now at the time, oh, she lived in New York, but she was, I was talking about like songs, you know, I was thinking about writing songs, she said, like, we should write a song, like like uh, this cheap trick song called Downed, I don't even know, you know the song, but it doesn't really sound anything like Winter Song, but I was like thinking of that song when I, I was writing a song, and it came up with a Winter Song. And uh, that's like a song, example of pretty much all me. I think Lanning had a couple lines in that song, but it was pretty much all stuff I wrote. It's a love song or? Um no. It's a song about Mark Lanigan showing up at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and it's well, I love the, that. It says <laughs> and it's not and instead of Lanigan, it's Jesus knocking on the door. Ooh, Jesus nice. knocking on my door. Yeah. So <laughs> Well, you're not Lanigan's gonna get that. Story else,
0: but, uh. No, yeah. That's amazing. Um yeah, that yeah. I love that tune too. Uh Trouble times. Loved, Go ahead. Get, yeah,
2: sorry. Oh, the other one I really love is a one that Mark and Van wrote all together. Was uh, "Julie Paradise," and we played that live for years. Great. The, the, the last song. Yeah, I really love that song. It's just like you know, really uh, cool rock song. Great vocals and it's a great, great, album lyrics, closer too. Um, yeah, thanks, yeah. So, what about uh, "Troubled Times" was another song that Van wrote and then Mark ended up I think a lot of the lyrics Mark came up. That was one of the ones that uh what was the name of that song? Uh, oh yeah, it was <laughs> This is the one. We, this is an example of like the way the lyrics were like. You know, uh, bad has. We never could come up with like a the uh, title for it or a chorus part, and we just sang, I think it was shit my pants on Monday. That was like <laughs> instead of like trouble time, it was like shit my pants on Monday shit my p- <laughs> And you know, in fact, God, this is a horrible story, sort of not horrible, but our A guy who was really cool. He but. He decided that he liked that so much. The demo of it was, uh, the, was Lannigan singing that, that he was going to put it out on a 45. Like somehow these things at was an indie credibility, it probably just wouldn't have been really stupid. And thank God our manager, who wasn't super, we, our manager was Kim White at the time. She was like also a good friend of ours. She liked enough to call me up and she, her slip of the tongue about it. I was like, what? So I called Lannigan. He was like pissed off, of course, you know it was gonna do this like before the record came out. <laughs> no luckily it didn't happen but that's some of the other songs are kind of like that you know like it's like god we don't know what we're gonna call it so we'll just like sing some crappy thing you know that doesn't make any sense over but luckily mark came up with stuff yeah or even that to him you know i mean i didn't have to like write the stuff at the last minute he did so
0: he is a a pretty unique singer, like a lot of the, the singers that came out yeah. that, that scene at the time. But it just kind of like the smoky, just I don't even know yeah. how to describe it. It's it it, it it's so yeah. earnest. Uh, it's, yeah, I
2: love his voice. I mean, it's like that was one of the things when we played down in California for the first time. I think it helped us get signed to SST. Is like you know they probably heard the other world's tape, maybe Clear Voice, where he sings a lot better. But you know when they heard him live. They're like, man this guy can sing and you know i i he didn't know it until he started singing some you know for the first few months of the band and we didn't know no know you know i i think he's got one of the best voices in the rock i mean I'm really, like honored to have him sing on all the songs back then you know i still like to listen to his stuff once in a while i listen to some of his new stuff he's he's done so many records with other people it's confusing how much stuff yeah, he has
0: out yeah. but
2: yeah i mean his voice you know was really really a huge part of the scream of trees you know him, um that's one reason I would never, you know, in fact, we made a deal like back, uh, it was before, right around time we got signed Epic that neither of us would be the scrimmage without the other one, me and
0: oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, because that's where I was going next. I really think um, your approach to especially your rhythm playing is, uh, is definitely unique and, and you kind of have your own signature sound. And yeah. the way You approach stuff.
2: Um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm
0: guessing you're not classically trained.
2: <laughs> no. Well, it's weird because, like, I am like musically classically trained because I, I seriously. Played, well, I was well, I was a trumpet player in high school. Oh, okay. And I went to college and majored in music performance, and I took all. But at the same time, I was playing guitar. But I never applied any of the musical. You know, stuff to the guitar. I never could sit down and read music with the guitar and play it. Okay, but I write. You know, I took like two years of like hard ass music theory and trumpet lessons and everything, but I never played guitar in that context. Or you know, I didn't even said anything about guitar in like you know music in the music department. I went to this the college in uh, Ellensburg.
0: It's almost like you're using two different sides of your brain when you're playing one instrument versus a guitar. Yeah.
2: And, you know, I just didn't like practicing. I didn't really like playing the trumpet like I did guitar. Guitar was like a totally different. Oh, yeah. thing. And, uh, you know, it was just um, that was what I was meant to do is play guitar, not play trumpet. So I knew I wanted to be in music from like really early on. But it was funny because, like, I remember uh, like our senior party, like a graduation party. Like, I remember like talking to somebody. I was like, yeah, what do you want to do your, You know, do with your life? It's like, I want to be in a rock band. Which took a few years, but I did manage to do that. And, you know, I didn't make a living on it completely, but you know, did all right, yeah. way better than most people even dream of. So of I can't course. complain uh, about
0: I, it. I, <laughs> you can count me on that list. Yes, I uh, yeah, I gave her hell and fell well short of the screaming Trace.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's weird. It's weird looking out, out back and what's ha- what happened. The other day, have you ever seen that? Um, uh, you know Charles Peterson, the rock photographer, did a lot of the Nirvana and so. Oh sure, yeah. Yeah, he had put out a book about uh, 10, 15 years ago called "Streaming Law."
0: I know, I, I know the book, but I haven't seen it.
2: Yeah, well, it's like I, I had, I was out in the garage the other day, and I was like, oh, why did I put this in the garage? Because it's pretty cool. But look at that thing! I remember when I first saw it, it. Was like, it's like it was like my high. That's like my high school yearbook. You know, <laughs> I yeah. mean, all those people. Those <laughs> were like you know because I hated high school and I was like a total like you know nerd and didn't nobody else liked me. I was like, i the only guy with long hair, probably the whole class. Right. But yeah, it was just like, you know, those are our friends. Those are, our, but at the same time, it's also like looking to like at a, you know, like book of like, you know, sixties rock icons or something like that. It's like, that's really weird, you know, thinking, thinking that because, and, and it's cool because over the years, you know, it's obviously we became at least a decent, you know, Part of that, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying we're the biggest band in the world or anything, but you know, we all, all we ever wanted to do was be a band, like be a real band that had records and played shows and, you know, people had heard of. And that's what we did. You know, that was the dream come true. Yeah, it would have been a dream come true. Before we got something Epic, and then that was all just weird. Okay, you know, weird and surreal. After that,
0: well, let's talk about the album cover a little bit because I'm not really sure what's going on here. Yeah. Is this just uh, some random thing, or was there uh, kind I'm of a sure point what's to it?
2: Going on either. <laughs> and, well, we we did photographs like uh, some of the like the ones that are on the back. We yeah, this weird place. It kind of sucks because you can't tell what a weird place it was. It was in New York Harbor. This old ship that was all rusted out and had been made into a bed and breakfast. It was still all rusted out though. Hmm. And we took a bunch of pictures. And those the cover was this control panel down in the engine room. And while they were taking the pictures of us, we were like, oh let's take pictures of that. So they did a bunch of those. And the only real association of what it was supposed to kind of be was like uh you know the 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 term sweet oblivion would kinda of like could be like uh you know like Dying, or you know, um, like maybe electric, like the idea of like an electric chair switch, you know, like the big switch, like a cartoon where they pull down the switch, yeah, and would kind of that was like where we got the idea to put sweet oblivion on the cover, like that. Kind of isn't there like a switch? I think, yeah, or something? yeah, I'm looking at it right oh, now. Somewhere. Oh, yeah, there's mm-hmm. one right there, yeah, yeah right, yeah. See, it says sweet oblivion and it's got that switch, that was sort of the idea, and then somebody was like, Oh, dude, how's it? photo of the covers like okay stick us in that little hole <laughs> that's a really good photo but it's kind of hard to see because you can't even hardly see it it's so small mm-hmm. of so course i'm looking at the cd but still yeah.
0: i like it by the way i just a little baffled oh. as to what was going on yeah
2: it's, i mean it's it's obscure but all our album covers are kind of like that you know part of the problem with being you know the the way our the politics and vibe of the band was that like I had a lot of, you know, ideas artistically, but you know, they're mostly real psychedelic and Mark wasn't into that. And okay. I learned early on that not to bring up my ideas for albums. The only the only uh, idea I ever got on an album cover was on uh, Invisible Lantern or second SST record really. On the back cover, like oh there was like a bunch of little squiggly psychedelic looking vines around the pictures and stuff i did all that stuff that was my uh wait, yeah and then well uh, my first solo the purple outside was on uh one of the sst associated labels uh new alliance band did a record like that was right at the same time uh Landigan did his first solo um sub pop band and i did solo albums on new alliance which it would, the original idea was to have all three of us do solo albums mm. this was like in between buzz factory and like uh, kiss Aladdin. yeah exactly that was the idea mm. so we talked again about it he's like yeah sure you know he basically let you do whatever album you wanted to um and uh mark had moved over to seattle and got hooked up with sub pop at the time and they just, I don't know. But anyway, so Van's, yeah, Van's record was, uh, he had an actual band called Solomon Grundy. I said, like, mine was sort of a band. It was just me and my brother Patrick played drums. So, But if you look at the cover, that's called uh, Purple Outside Mystery Lane was on New Alliance Records. That's like the kind of thing I would yeah, <laughs> have okay. yeah back then. You know, it's like this old guitar with flowers um, and psychedelic writing.
0: And so the stuff. psychedelic kind of influence in the band comes from you?
2: Only me, probably.
0: Yeah, you know? that's kind of picking up there. <laughs> Since
2: I wrote the majority of the songs, it really, you know, showing up, it's kind of tough. With like the one guy, the guy writes almost everything, is massively into psychedelic. It wants to have like you know, like I don't. Do you ever heard of Plastic? Lines? <laughs> they were uh, like a. They were like a psychedelic revival.
0: Oh no, band. no, no.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're. I love you know one of my favorite bands, but that's what I would have been like. you know, a lot of there was a lot of psychedelic 60s revival bands in the 80s. And I just I really wanted to be like that, you know.
0: Um, Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel like you you missed out on that? Or do you think that maybe it was good to have this kind of give and take where like, you know, somebody else is coming at you with a different idea and you kind of have to decide where to go?
2: Oh, we ended up being the opposite. But that was what a lot of the probably tension between me and Lanigan was, at least on the writing side of things, was that I wanted to do that. And he didn't want to be psychedelic at all. So, you know, it kind of was tough for him when, I don't know, you know, he could have written stuff and brought it to us. He that's weird with, even though he did write, you know, with us sometimes, he never once said, here's a song I wrote. Why don't we do it? Not even later on. I hmm. never could understand why because, you know, he'd always be especially when we're trying to come up with the follow-up to, to Sweet Oblivion you know, he's like pounding on us to come up with something like, Nearly yeah, lost you or something you know, just something that he likes and since he was like on heroin at that time it was not making it any easier and uh, but he was writing songs you know, he did the solo album during mm-hmm. that time the second, his second album, the Whiskey for the Holy Ghost so why didn't he have us doing some of those songs or a couple of them? They're pretty damn good stuff. Really good stuff on the record. I get to hear us have done. And it would have been interesting having a couple of his songs because it would have mixed things up a little because his melodies and stuff were quite a bit different than even, even when, you know, he doesn't, even the Screamy Tree songs that he pretty much totally wrote, like probably the only two he totally wrote were, um, with Van though, coming up with music were Dollarville, and Julie Paradise.
0: Okay,
2: I can hear some of his melodies in there, but if you listen to the, even those two songs and then compare them to his the solo stuff, it really doesn't sound like it. You know, he's got a certain melodic way that he does does things writing-wise, and that never ever came into at least any of the stuff we released. Hmm. Uh, just kind of, I don't, know, I never understood why he didn't have a, speech, you know, because it was quite, we were under a lot of pressure between uh Sweet Oblivion and Dust which is one reason it took so long.
0: To yeah, let's to get into that. Why did it take so long? I mean, was uh Well, cuz I know Barrett, you know, was did that Mad Season project you mentioned, yeah. you know, Mark's uh um, solo record, but and even Mark was involved a little bit in the Mad Season thing. I mean, Right.
2: Um, well, they, they were on? off doing that stuff and I was banging my head against the wall writing about 50 million songs trying to come up with stuff for dust yeah um, I, I, I just got married uh, and I was my wife lived in New York still I was trying to spend as much time as I could out there but I had to end up getting the apartment still in Seattle mm-hmm. and uh, sitting there for about two years writing songs and you know I would write write stuff all day long you know hopefully come up with a new song take a tape to land he's in the morning he'd be calling me like what's going on and that meant like oh you're working on a song right you better fucking be wow (laughs) and then i take the tape to mark maybe stop and get him fast food and you know and did he say like oh come on in and let's listen to no it's like hands comes out the door
0: what what kind of fast food did he prefer uh, certain...
2: I remember a lot of Jack in the box okay. of course, there wasn't enough, but it had to be open late at night okay. because it was like I'd drive across Seattle like a, and, uh, you no, know, two in the morning the number six the tape almost, Jack in the box right, almost every night, so um I'd be driving over so <laughs> there was no traffic, which was nice, so. yeah okay. But then the next day, I might get a call, maybe once every couple weeks, saying, "Oh, this is really good," because usually I just wouldn't hear from him. And later in the day, he'd be like, "What are you doing?" You know? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. what about what I just brought you? Yeah. If he didn't say anything, I just assumed that he thought it sucks. So, but a lot of it did because I had to do so much. You know, I had to write. I had it was like horrible. Instead of like loving to write songs and just doing it because I like it, it was like this horrible job that wasn't get paid hardly anything for. Uh, stuck in Seattle my wife's in New York writing the songs for the next record and we we actually tried to record it with Dolph Fleming again in late 93 but I hadn't been writing stuff and mark was not in his social mood it, anymore like he was in sweet oblivion and the it just you know we had some there was a couple of songs like dying days was written back then we tried doing that and a couple of it just didn't come together and we, you know, said, Well, we gotta try to write more songs. So that was the idea. But it, it turned into like a two year long waiting period basically where I was like working my ass off. And see that was the darkest time of my life those two years. just like but somehow we managed to come up with all the songs. And Van helped quite a bit. But Lanigan I mean that's the thing with Dust is like that's probably like the album that is the least amount of Lanigan on it of any record mm. we ever did. Which is weird because, like, you know, the two main, I mean, it's got a hell of a lot of really good uh, re- c- critical acclaim. You know, oh, yeah. even though it didn't sell as much, it sold it right, too.
0: No, and it's uh, a really good know, record. That's, that's surprising yeah, and, that that he didn't play as big a role.
2: No, he didn't. You know, I've thought about that quite a bit lately because of stuff in his book. And uh, yeah, it's weird. that I mean, he was we got once we got in the studio everything went pretty well we got along well and everything and even his vocals i mean he sings pretty good on dust but compared to sweet oblivion it's just not quite yeah not quite there you know um wasn't his like the most amazing thing i've ever heard from him because i knew he could do better you know (laughs) but which was a little bit disappointing but only in a few spots and i don't think if you hadn't you know, written the songs you wouldn't think about. It. So, because, you know, because at that, by that point, I had sort of expectations like, well, I could do this and it might sound all right, but if he does it, it's going to sound fucking amazing, you know. Yeah. So, but when there's like a couple parts like of certain songs where it's like, man, he didn't quite do that the way I thought it was going to be, you know, but that's getting nitpicky. So, sure. Overall, it turned out great. So,
0: yeah no, I like the record a lot. Um, uh, Oops going back to sweet oblivion a little bit uh, when when was the last time you, th- you actually sat down and listened to it
2: sweet oblivion oh the whole record probably maybe a long time years <laughs> and years Although well, i do listen to certain songs like i the other day i watched all our videos cuz i was posting so, you know i post a lot of stuff on the facebook on the yeah Scrimatur. you run that
0: page right yeah, group the, the group
2: yeah it. i just started i didn't start really doing it much until about a little over a year ago but just because I was like putting out a, a new record of mine, I was like, maybe I should start running screaming trees too, and then you know, use my rec- get my record promoted too. So I kind of mix the two up, and uh, which has worked out really well. But yeah, li- what did I listen to? Um, oh, oh, nearly lost you because I was watching the videos, talking. The videos are kind of ridiculous.
1: <laughs> nearly lost you,
2: okay? But the other ones after that, butterfly starts getting ridiculous. And then all I know is pretty ridiculous and exploding broken is just like over the top. Like, why the hell? And plus, they cost so much money. You know, it was like, I think the budgets were like $150,000, yeah. $200,000 by the time we got on dust. So crazy. That was the one thing weird with that. You know, Sweet of Believing, they're kind of like, we're like, we don't really, you know, they they were promoting us but they weren't like throwing everything behind us but like when we did dust they were like man we'll give you whatever you want tour money money for videos you know whatever but our stupid managers had by that point we already went through all different managers is this q prime uh, at that point q prime yeah those guys were a fucking nightmare i hated them man they were just the people who worked there were really cool but the guys uh peter mentioned i don't know about bernstein but Mans was just a fucking Dickhead man, and, and he like I, I couldn't believe what what was going on. That when the whole time I was writing songs, we were having to give them to them. Like why? Since when does your manager have anything to do with what your music doing musically? I don't know. That never happened before. It's like you know they might want to listen to it, but they're not saying like this is going to work. This is not You can't do this song. You can't. Uh, yeah. That was like that. That was another probably one of the problems of taking so long was those guys being our managers. How did they um, get in the know. picture? It was like uh, our a and guy, Bob Pfeiffer, knew um and we were having trouble with uh, Kim White. Was having, She was just having some personal problems, I think, and um, wasn't really doing a very good job. So he was like uh, looking for somebody new, and they were like, they wanted to get into grunge, because this was probably the middle of 93, but when we started getting them, um, early 93. And um, so they were like okay we'll try these guys and <laughs> they didn't know what they were getting into because that was in landing and was really getting bad into the okay. heroin scene and stuff but uh yeah later they got um, smashing pumpkins a year or two later and that was probably more interesting i don't know how that worked out i don't know if they stayed on keep or not. but yeah but uh, you know having the they they like the def Leopard and and metallica a, 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 yeah, Metalli- oh, yeah metallica docking back in part, the day and yeah. yeah and then you know we that was probably one of the reasons we got on the Lollapalooza with metallica was because they were our managers which seemed like a big score by 96 it wasn't quite as big a deal to be on Lollapalooza, although it was right. still a tour as opposed to one show like it is now um that was we had a lot we had a good time on that That's is that the
0: only uh you guys were involved in
2: yeah, yeah, I went to a couple of those, but that was the only one I played. Right, yeah, Yeah, that's what I mean. yeah it sucks, because, you know, maybe if we had got a record out, like, you know, maybe, but a couple of years earlier, we would have been on one, like, 94 or something like that. But,
0: I mean, it's easy to um, look back and, 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 and think that, but that definitely seems like that had to hurt, right, the, the delay there?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, on the one hand, artistically, I'm like, you know, I, I love the... Or dust and all the other records too but you know in fact that one's probably like the most like what we were trying to achieve i think we finally achieved it with that record and it had a lot to do with our producer george DeCoulias because he brought in like you know people like ben montance to play keyboards you know from tom petty and heartbreakers that's mm-hmm. an amazing job a lot of stuff like that and you know but it, it's like you know it's a, like a great Old rock record or something like that. And we made it. You know, it is an old rock record now. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shut up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, So
3: Yeah.
0: Was there like so, well, how did how did the band break up? Was it just kind of like yeah. a, a official thing, a big fight, or was it just uh, time passed and everybody says, "Well, I guess we're done."
2: Yeah, basically, because what happened was by the time we, we finished the uh, well, La uh, we did so much where we did. T- Nifty little tour, US tour the Oasis when they were trying to break in the US. It didn't really work out for them. Mm. Partially because they canceled the tour yeah. after a few days. But um yeah, we went to England. And then uh, in early 97, we played some shows in, Nor- in the Northwest and California for still for dust. And then we kind of didn't do much at all. And I was living in New York at the time. I went back to college and got like I had a free. Free college. My wife, she's a PhD in chemistry, and she was teaching chemistry at uh, a Catholic college, and they got free tuition for spouses. So I like to go to college, finish college for free. I didn't really do anything in my major education, didn't didn't do anything with it, but I got a college degree for free. Congrats, man. Yeah, (laughs) thanks. But, um, yeah, a few times during those like 97, 98, 99, 2000, we got together and recorded some stuff uh, and did a few shows here and there and just, you know, it was kind of, we, we got off of Epic. We wanted to get off of Epic just because I don't know, they'd been whole, going along with Q Prime and not really, at least after the middle of the year of us being out, they kind of it was a lot probably more to do with Lanigan's heroin problem. That, okay, they're not promoting the record as much, but I mean, it definitely was with Q Prime. I think they just kind of like ended with is like a hot potato because of Mark. You know, we don't need to deal with this shit. Uh, yeah, we recorded some things that ended up coming out later on that Last Words thing. Those were all the sort of demos, like there were new songs mm-hmm. that finally I a lot of that was cool about the songs was I was in New York and just writing stuff because I liked it again instead of being forced to. So. That was nice. And we tried to record them or did record them uh, in two or three different sessions and didn't do anything with them. I think we used them to send some record labels, but nobody was, you know, that was rock was kind of like on a downturn by the end of the 90s and really didn't get a lot of any decent offers. You know, we didn't really want to go back to an indie label, which we could have done, but I'm sure we, you know, Sub Pop would have been like like, excited to put out something by us, but we didn't want to do that. So, by 2000 we got that the last show we played was the experience music project which is this crazy idea in seattle i never heard of that they had frank what's that frank geary the insane architect who makes the weird looking buildings he built this stupid looking building in the seattle center and basically they put a rock museum in it like with grunge and other Yeah, yeah yeah, and it was just like we we went and saw it like, before. The, we played we played the show to open it, you know, and we were headlining, and they like gave us sixty five thousand dollars. I know somehow Lanigan like talked him into giving us sixty five thousand bucks, which is like, way more than we would ever made before. It was like nice. you know going out on going out on top at least you know, it was like it was funny because like that was like all through the career of the band there was another thing with dust it's like everything we ever did did better you know like that first we put our own records then we got signed to sst and those records would sell you know each one was successfully sell more and they got an epic and that would sell more and then sweet oblivion was like way more and then dust was kind of like oh it didn't quite to what we were hoping so that was another reason probably is because we'd always yeah. been on a an turn, and suddenly it was kind of like well we're back down now and uh but the last show <laughs> we went on top like, for so much money we actually made you know after the bills were paid we probably made like five ten grand a piece but yeah. not too bad you know not at all for an hour's or less work <laughs> yeah, yeah. There- yeah but the weird thing about the show was i did not know it was to be our last show and van didn't know it was be our last show and apparently mark did know he was you know it didn't surprise me that it was our last show because we hadn't been doing anything and i was yeah. living in new york but i guess van was pretty pissed about it because i just after the i didn't know till after the show and like somebody came and said hey you know mark said that this was your last show i'm like is and i was kind of shocked but i don't know it did it did kind of like you know it was a like probably like 10 years of like decompression and like not having the band and not being in the band decompression and depression i mean and i really didn't do anything myself because i was living out in the middle of texas i still don't know anybody here but finally i uh kind of caught up with technology kind of caught up with me and i was able to do records just at home on my own that sound pretty, pretty close to stuff you do in the studio? Especially nowadays, where you never know what, where, or what people are recording <laughs> on their digital technology yeah. and stuff. But yeah, I I put out um, three records in the last ten years just on my own and with the help of. It. I got a couple of labels that do vinyl. A guy in Italy called the label called Genzosi Ruptum, who apparently has some kind of in with uh, some vinyl uh, manufacturer because like the two records he's done on vinyl he like took him about two or three months from the idea he would do it until it got out and you know, most people are like man we can't get to our vinyl but this guy is like i don't know how he does it so fast So like i think it was like last uh august he was like when it put out my first record that i've done 10 years ago called the micro.gnome and mm, yeah i'll be asked about it and said, "Oh, he want because he'd already done the Unicorn Curry, which is my record that came out a couple of years ago." And he was going to re-release this one. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm figuring, okay, it's going to take at least like four or five months. And I'm like uh, in like what was it, middle of December? It was like I think he, I think he told me the first of October. In the middle of December, he had the records, like vinyl. <laughs> it was like two and a half months or something. I was like, really? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know how he does it. So I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so I did that. I did uh, just all the stuff I did myself at home, and made it sound hopefully like it's a real, a real album. I try my best. I hate mixing, but my second record, I had uh, Van mm. help me some. He he got it on vinyl, and had got Jack and Dino to mix it because he's mm. friendly, good friends with him. And uh, that came out. Let's see, the first record, Microdot known album. I put out in 2010 just digitally it didn't come out in vinyl until just recently but then uh, in 2016 that was the one band did on his label called strangers records called ether trippers and now jack and dino mixed it and which i i use like program drum, you know, like samples. Okay, he was he was actually surprised. <laughs> he was like, "Well, this was really good, actually." Because at first, I was, when I said it to him, it was like, "He's gonna hate the drums." But know, his remastering
0: gone. of like Soundgarden Ultra Mega Okay was, uh, yeah, it was light years better than the original oh, version. Yeah.
2: Well, he's a he's really great at stuff and recording wise. So I just kept going myself, and then I put mm-hmm. out the record uh, Unicorn Curry like two years ago. And I managed to get uh, this, uh, hooked up with this Italian company that does vinyl and also uh, another company that does uh, CDs in the US called Forbidden Place Records and they put it out on CD. And I'm promoting that stuff as much as I can on Facebook and I'm promoting the Screaming Tree stuff. And yeah. I'm working on a new record right now, which I may have Van play bass on. See on that, so. where's, possibly, he, where's
0: Van located right now?
2: He's in Stanwood, Washington, which is about 50 miles north of. Seattle okay. um, he works he has a he has a really good job that he keep. He, he's like over the years he keeps having problems like I don't know he has different kind of alcohol and drug problems than landing, but um, he has had to go to rehab several times but they keep He doesn't lose his job because of the screaming trees. They like the screaming trees so much. That's how he got the job. (laughs) The job is like it's a hundred thousand dollar a year job working for the local electricity company, you know. And he like monitors like the electrical grid and stuff. Right now he's doing it at home because of the virus thing.
1: Mm, He's got like
2: five monitors at home, and he'll call me during the day. And sometimes I don't know if he's been drinking. (laughs) He sounds like maybe he has. I don't know, but uh, yeah. So that that's what he does you know i'm i'm lucky because my my wife has a really nice job here in san angelo and i just have to do i used to have a job delivering papers for years just so i had something to do and to make some money you know we're doing okay now with
0: with with that there's bands that i that are definitely lesser known than screaming trees that i've come across over the years that they get a little bit of money thrown at them to reunite and do something has there ever been any type of offer to, to to put the band back together
2: there's not not an offer, but we did talk about it about seven or eight years ago. It was like, see, we we had those recordings um, from the late two thousand or late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were like, well, you know, so they're pretty decent stuff. And we decided we wanted to put it out. And Barrett had been starting a record label called Senyata Records. So he decided he was going to put it out. So we went and got it mixed. And it came out in 2012. It was called Last Words. Have you seen that one? Last, last Words, the final recordings and it's got all those stuff yeah, that we Yeah, I, did know, I know what you're talking about. Right, so right around that time, we were kind of like, well, maybe we could, you know, and get back together. Lanning was like, actually kind of interested. At the time I was kind of interested too. Now I just don't think, you know, I would be interested at all. Because I mean, the only and the only, the really only driving idea was that we could make some money. And yeah. I hate that, you know, I would hate to get back together because we would make some money. I mean, if it was some huge amount of money, it would be really hard because we never, you know, one time way back in probably ninety two or ninety three, we got offered ten thousand dollars from Budweiser to do a commercial for them, where we rewrote "Nearly Lost You" as something like "Nearly Lost a Bud." Mm-hmm. And I remember we had a meeting with our big time lawyer Rosemary Carroll, who I'm not sure if she had something to do with Nirvana. I've seen her name and like you know <laughs> uh, <clears throat> musical history stuff. But she Was our lawyer too, and we had the meeting with her. and We're like, uh, luckily, I don't know what I was because like ten thousand dollars, but it used to seem like a lot of money, it's yeah. like pocket change now. Like, you know, um, you learn about how much it costs actually to live, have a house, and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. right? Not that I'm getting that much money, but but on the other hand, um. So we decided not to do it, you know, nearly lost a bug. God, I can't even imagine. That would have been, you know, not cool. So we never did anything. I mean, we never sold uh, Just
0: on that Budweiser thing, here's why it's super smart to do what you did. Because if you guys split that four ways, that's $2,500 each. I know. What are we, we're 20, 30 years from that? You you don't have that money, but that, that commercial still sits out there
2: well, here's a good a good story as far as $10,000 for Van goes. Because when we first got signed to Epic, we thought, like, oh, you always want to do a publishing deal? You can get an advance. Like, yeah, $10,000 advance. And we're like, yeah, okay, you know, ooh, you get a couple thousand bucks a piece. Well, you know, uh, 30 years later, they still own half our publishing. And I would have made twice as much money if I wouldn't oh. have gotten that damn $10,000. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I mean, we do, we do all right. We don't make enough money to live on. But we still, especially the last ten years, like more money's been coming in from from the tree stuff. You know, make like ten, twenty thousand dollars a year.
0: Well, that's extra not bad. It uh... which is
2: great. No, you know. Actually, yeah, that, everyone... that was
0: one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Like, in a business sense, who owns Screaming Trees? you guys don't have an official website. Uh, it takes you to a Facebook page.
2: You no, know, we were well, we were a partnership, but it just costs yeah. money to have lawyers, and and or, we didn't have a lawyer, but we. We didn't have a manager. We had financial managers and accountants and in Seattle still that we had for like 10 years. So, um, we just decided to disband the partnership cause it was just, you know, you have to file taxes on it every year instead of just, you know, you have to wait for the accountants to get the tax stuff done. And it's just saying that you didn't make any money, you know, cause we weren't making the band wasn't making yeah. money. We personally were making some money, but that's coming to us. So it just, get, we just cut that off. And so, um, you know, we all own it. Right. Still, if you want to, you know, get technical advice about it. But if we do get any money, we just split it up appropriately for, you know, most of the money we get is like publishing. So that goes to each person personally. We don't have to worry about it. If we got a check for the Screaming Trees, it'd be kind of like, well, how are we going to do this? Because we wouldn't, like, you know, somebody would have to cash it and, like, figure out if they had to pay, like, you know, Fix the tax situation because we don't have a tax number anymore, you know, because it's not a a partnership. So it's kind of confusing. So
0: there's no like official Screaming Trees merch out there or anything like that? No,
2: like anything you see is not official. (laughs) It's like, unless it's on eBay, it's like an old thing maybe. But uh, all it's like, there's Screaming Trees t shirts all over the place. And, and, you know, and some people like, you know, like Epic, like we, we get paid from you know, our publishing company. I, we probably maybe someday we'll have paid back our million. We owed Epic like a million dollars or something (laughs) with all those videos and recordings and stuff. Fuck them. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but you get, um, right away, get any publishing money from records you sell from stuff like that. So that's what we actually do make money on, which is cool. Yeah. And and on streaming stuff, but SST is kind of weird about paying. They, uh, and paid it on and off for years
0: I've heard bad stories about SST as far as that stuff goes
2: you know I don't know the internal technical stuff, but you know, like a lot of labels in the late eighties they just had too many bands, and that's one that's one reason we decided to go for a different label was because they put out our album Buzz Factory, and they didn't put it out. We like had a tour all set up, went on tour, and the records weren't in the stores because they had been running out of money to make them you know which kind of sucks. <laughs> So that's what happens, and then they a lot of bands they didn't pay, but they they start paying us like and giving us statements like in the '90s. And then they didn't pay us for a long time, and then about ten years ago they paid us, and we haven't heard anything from them. And in the meantime, they put out—they're still manufacturing stuff, and they put it yeah. all digitally and stuff. So they must owe us up. Now. I'm trying to get a hold of the guys, but sort of hard. You know, it's just basically Greg He moved down here somewhere like an somewhere close
0: to Austin
2: or something. Huh. Yeah, I would, um, he still has all the tapes and stuff from all those bands.
0: Or, you know, yeah, <laughs> a band locally here, Hoosker, do. They, they, uh, oh, yeah. Bob Mould has talked about uh, how they can't do any deluxe reissues of all that stuff because basically SST is impossible.
2: Yeah, and that's with. the other thing that sucks with this is I'd really love to you know be able to put out like a box set or something like that. And a lot of people are like, mm-hmm. you should do this. So they like, yeah, well, um, I would do it if I had... The other problem is, I don't know, you know, we don't have any tape, like our tapes are like, where are our tapes? I have no idea. Like, even like the multi-tracks, like Epic maybe has the stuff we did in vault somewhere. But like, as far as all the SST stuff, I mean, SST might have master, you know, stereo tapes, but the multi-tracks are probably somebody's, somebody who have no idea or they are in garage. You brought them at a pawn shop because Lanigan, (laughs) Lanigan has them. For a long time, we kept them, uh, a bunch of tapes at Susan Silver's office, but then Lanigan got them. And I think he may have pawned them or something. I don't know what he Oh, called, dear but, God. You know, because, you know, I guess in the 90s, some old band screen trees, you could get $20 for these tapes. I don't know. Mm. So I don't know. If you ever wanted to remix anything, it probably wouldn't be possible. I heard. So that that kind of stuff because you know I have, a, I have a lot of stuff we'd like to put out I don't know what Mark would think about it. I don't know if they even ask if he like put out he got like a deal put out our first record on CD like about 15 years ago about uh, Clairvoyance album and didn't even tell us about it which was nice of him. I I think he gave us a little bit of money <laughs> what, what what is back.
0: your what is your relationship with Mark
2: now? Um, you know I talked to him like uh, it was a long time ago now when we were talking about getting back together it would be like what well, we did it's like 2012 or 13 and then when the book came out i like i saw i saw like one page from it that was like probably well maybe it wasn't the worst page about me but there's a lot of nasty stuff about me but you know and we didn't get to we didn't get along well so that's probably true but at one point this page i saw he said all you know, those those songs were unbelievable shit or something like that calling the song you know that was what, that really upset me but mm-hmm. I actually um Said so I made a comment on, about Facebook. This is, it really upset me. And I didn't say anything bad about Mark because I really, you know, I musically respect him and I you know, love his voice still. And I'm an honored he sang on all the Screaming Trees stuff and yeah. And I like it all too. But he actually like corresponded with me and was kind of cool about it. So I don't know. I'm not mad at him or anything. Just he's just the same way you <laughs> been. <laughs> so you know. Um. So actually, you earphone
0: I I only uh, had an ex- I only uh, have so far read an excerpt from the book and it's yeah. one of the most detailed spiraling drug you know yeah. junkie stories ever. So was was that largely his issue or were there other other guys were you all dealing with something?
2: Well, I was the guy who wasn't dealing with anything. Not I don't know, at all. No no
0: alcohol, I'm- nothing or
2: I drank occasionally. I did not drink. I used to smoke pot once, well, but I never did anything else. I did. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> that, that's the like.
0: psychedelic in you.
2: I know. Well, see, the thing was is I love psychedelic music. And then finally, when we we went on tour in uh, uh, ninety, the fall of ninety six, and went to California, and there's this guy there at one of the shows who was like, "You yeah, guys are really great. You know, uh, you got an album." And I was like, "Yeah." He said, "If you send me your Clairvoyance record, I'll send you like tabs of acid." And I said, OK, what well, you know, so I gave my dress and a few weeks later, a letter shows up with five little paper things. And I'm like, I don't know. I have no experience. I smoked pot a few times. And I took one and then I didn't think it was working. And I took another. I took all of it. <laughs> I had like 24-hour acid trip that was good and bad, but it was definitely very, very influential on the songwriting. And that was the only time I ever did acid. I think it was probably, in a lot of ways, it was good that I did so much, and it kind of turned me off to wanting to do it again because I probably okay. have done it more, which would not have been a good thing. But yeah, all, all those, all those like the songs, like uh, even if and especially when and Buzz Factory and Invisible Man are all very influenced by that one acid trip. I think plus my love of psychedelic music, you know. Can't yeah. discount that. I mean, that's what I'm into by now. <laughs> it's my love of psychedelic music. I'm not sitting in here in Texas doing acid all the time. I've been twenty by twenty-four, well, twenty-three years. I don't know. So, really?
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Ninety-two is the last time for me.
2: Ninety-two. Yeah.
0: It just never did anything for me. I don't. I really don't have a problem with it. I'll legalize the shit.
2: I smoke a little bit on and off and then like when we were working on kind of dust I was actually buying it occasionally like to go to sleep or something but it just made me so sleepy it was, uh, I don't know but he has some really good hash a couple times in Europe that, mm. that was <laughs> crazy that was really sad. that was pretty psychedelic that's almost like doing half you know, stuff
0: but, what about Barrett uh, do you still talk to him at all?
2: yeah occasionally yeah he like pays us money sometimes from that last word record so he calls me High. Yeah, I talked to him two or three months ago, probably. Yeah, I talk, we actually talked, man. We talked to Mark Pickrell um, a while back. We had a three-way call a couple of times. Oh, nice! Just, I mean, so it was cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, as far as talking with Land It's like, you know, I would. not He actually used to call me up, like, when we first the band first um, broke up. So I was living moved out here to Texas for the first year or two. He would call me up and like want to do something else, but we never it never worked out. Then I guess he got in Queens of the Stone Age and kind of forgot about doing anything. I mean, he wanted me like, to do a record with just me and him, not reunite Screaming Trees, but just like do a record because i sent it him some. Huh. He like, was still trying to rely on my songs. It's
0: like, like
2: <laughs> your own songs.
0: Damn it. Have you played on any of his stuff? Did I see something like that?
2: On what? On his stuff?
0: Yeah, any of his solo albums?
2: No, I never played on anything. Not me, but other people. Man. I don't know who else. He's probably had, he's had so so many records himself, and then he's like collaboration insanity. I can't never seen anybody collaborate more. It's like I don't know, maybe the table on money. But that's what yeah, the okay. with Mark is he's got his career in music. But you know, if like I don't know what he's doing right now with the virus and stuff, because he's probably having trouble financially. But you know, my we have. My wife and I feel okay, so we don't have to worry about being destitute on the street. And Dan apparently has a job that he can go back. to every day
0: Yeah, right. He can long. get hammered every day and uh, still work, make, make make six figures. So he's my hero officially now. By the way, <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> See, like, well, that's the thing is, like, you know, I've been down here for twenty years, and occasionally I've had people recognize me in town and stuff like that, um, which surprised the hell out of me. It's like, you know, especially like. 10-15 years ago a lot of the people had like been at the, some of the 90s shows like the Law of Palooza shows in Texas yeah. or like the Spin Doctor sold you know thing fans it's just like it's insane having been in the trees up there it's like you know because that was the one if we were famous anywhere in Seattle we were famous and continued to okay be over the years because you know We're like kind of, I mean, just the name, Screaming Trees. I mean, it never, we never thought of it in that context, you know, being from the Northwest. I don't think until, until after, um, we had it for a long time. It's like, oh, because Ellensburg is in a desert, but it's right on the edge of the forest. Like the forest ends like a few miles outside of town, and then it turns Mm. into that Eastern Washington desert.
0: Um, Can I share a a really bad Screaming Trees joke with you? Yeah. Okay, this goes back away as long like back to the '90s. Uh, I work in printing. We do with yeah. a lot of paper, and uh, you know, there's also photocopiers around. And papers, you know, sheets will get jammed in there. Right. And you know, you know, like Texas jam. You live in Texas. I would go paper jam featuring screaming trees. <laughs> yeah, screaming right. trees are getting turned into paper. <laughs> I was making dad jokes in my
2: 20s. Yeah, that's funny.
0: Yeah, that's horrible. Hey, well, uh, you've been so kind with your time. Uh, l- l- let's get back to the record just a little bit. What are right. your final... W- w- how do you look back on it now? It, it's such a cool album. I mean, it, yeah. oh, one thing I, I should mention that, like, a lot of grunge bands didn't really do great with sequencing. This is a masterful job of yeah. sequencing from track one to track to the very end, even if you get it on vinyl. but So there's a compliment for you. But But looking back, how do you feel about it?
2: You know, it took us places we never would have imagined going. You know, the whole success of the record. I mean, as far as you know, I it's I like all our records. I like, but my favorite records of are probably Dust and Invisible Iron. But it's not like I think all oh, the other ones are shit. Right. You know, it's just like personal preference. But um, you know, it was it was fun actually having done something like a band. You know, getting together and rehearsing. And hanging out with each other and kind of being friends for a while there. You know, that was a good thing. And plus, you know, a lot of memories associated with like being, that was the time I, because I, I never really lived in Seattle more than like a couple of years, there, like so probably between 92 and 95 or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so, you know, a lot of good memories about hanging out with other people in Seattle and so that. It was plenty for, you know, I mean, because a lot of people were like, okay, the screaming trees never, you know, got bigger or whatever. But I don't know, you know, I don't know if I would have been that, except for like making a lot of money, been nice. But, <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm really about musically, you know. It's like, I just want people to, you know, to have a, be a band, and a real band, and, you know, people listen to, it, you know, it's nice to have people because you know, I feel bad for people who are like, you know, like just start music and they can't get anyone to listen to their music and it's like, uh I, I'm spoiled when that comes you know, even though maybe, mm-hmm. you know, my new stuff might sell hundred or three hundred copies or something, but I don't care how many it sells. And like, you know, it's a few people that listen to it. That's all I'm you know. So i spoiled, at least I do have a few people <laughs> listening to my stuff if I put it down. So
0: you know, can can I ask you something as as you know more one on one? You know, we're, you know I, I'm in my late forties. You, you, you're ahead yeah. of me a little bit based on the yeah. your age in yeah, 1985.
2: I'm almost 58.
0: Okay. almost um, th- fifty eight. Okay, I'm glad that I went through that time with the band that I did. You know what I mean? We we, yeah. we did it for almost twenty years, That's and and but you know we never really got out of the metro area where I live. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but. As I get older, I don't necessarily crave that, but I, I'm. I. It feels good when I think about those days. Is all I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, is that kind of where you're at now? You're kind of like doing your own thing, and and all. But you're yeah. really happy that you had that.
2: Oh yeah, because that was like you know. I mean, when I was like a teenager, teenager, in like in my early twenties, that was like my dream was to be what we became. Yeah. You know? I mean, and the, we went way farther than I ever. Dreamed of so, yeah. I mean, I don't know what it'd be weird. I can't even really think what it'd be like to have done it, you know, and just not really clicked and not got to do what we did because we did. <laughs> so oh, it's yeah, right. Like, you know, I gotta remember that. So, then i talking to people, it's like, well, they don't. So, yeah, you know. But I've I've gotten a lot more into the scream and tree stuff the last year because I've been using it to. Using it to promote my own stuff, well, you sure, know, which is great, and i I think, I think it makes a lot of people happy. You know that somebody's actually talking about it and tell stories about you know stuff that happened and maybe stuff. Well,
0: that let's mention bought. that. What what is the name of the group that people can check out on Facebook?
2: Oh yeah, it's just um, well, there's a couple. We have two pages. We have an official Screaming Trees page. this just mm-hmm. uh, Screaming Trees page. Yes,
0: easy to find.
2: Yeah, that's pretty easy. Yeah, if you look Screamy Trees on Facebook, to find that, the page. And then the other one's called – actually, this guy started it uh, way back uh, called – well, I don't know what it used to be called. It's called Screamy Trees Fan Club now. And yeah. I started posting stuff on it about a year and a half ago and just kind of ended up taking it over. And now we had like 300 members when I started. Now we got like 2,500 members. So that, that's the Screamy Trees Fan Club on Facebook.
0: And may, you're very may, active on it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I put. Yeah, I try to post something every day. So, and sometimes I tell a story about stuff. Sometimes.
0: No, it, it, it's it's oh, a lot God, of fun. I yeah, I checked it out trying to connect <laughs> with you, and uh, I definitely, if people are fans, they definitely want to head there because it's it's a really yeah. cool group, and and yeah, you, you're, it's all positive and upbeat too. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I try to. Yeah, I try not to be negative about stuff. I mean, I don't want to be negative about stuff. That's what. I mark's book i want to read it i haven't read it. i've only read like i've heard stuff from other people telling me you know well there's some good stuff in it and then i've read like a couple pages that i didn't even want to see i just saw it on by accident like somebody had an advanced copy last mm. from like winter and i was like oh okay i guess i'll read this It was like oh i shouldn't have that <laughs> you know wow um, but, well,
0: it's easy for me. I'm an outsider. Like yeah. the the one chapter I read, I'm like, okay, I have got to read this book. This sounds like one of those like, right. per, like if he's willing to acknowledge this stuff, he's telling everything. But um, I'm not a guy who was in a band with him. You know what I mean?
2: No, and that's the thing is like I, because I always went back to the hotel and and went to sleep or whatever, and I, I find out what happened. Because when I talked to Van, I'm like really that's what happened after I read <laughs> you know find out like what kind of stuff happens and, you know by reading the book that remind me of some of the stuff that i didn't know about me you know that i'm sure i'll find if i do read know if i can get through it okay but after having like i don't know he it's weird because he like said at some point that he had tried to contact us not me, but Van. About what yeah. was in the book, but he couldn't get a hold of Van. But he did other people, like you know, uh, other people who said talk shit about. Him. But he didn't yeah. like he needed to get a hold of me for some reason. And he kind of after the book, he did send me a letter, <clears throat> which is okay. <laughs> okay.
0: So, well, you know, I'll leave it between you guys. So. Yeah,
2: I'm not gonna, you know, I'm I'm not gonna have to go out and talk a bunch of shit about him. now. Van might go out and talk shit about me <laughs> because you know I. Like I said before. Hey,
0: send him my way. I'll let him talk shit.
2: Yeah, I respect Mark musically, and, you know, and he's, I know it's known what his personality's like, and it's like it always was now. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> hasn't changed over the years. But, I mean, getting to do the stuff I did with him, I can't, you know, that was awesome. It wouldn't have turned out to be a screen of Trees without him. Sure. And some, like, you know, 60s revival 80s band with a couple maybe with a record or two people are like oh yeah i really like that band but don't ever you
0: know and that comes through when you talk about this stuff i think it's clear that you you have a lot of respect for the the whole scene you yeah. you, you come across very honest it's very believable so
2: yeah well that's the thing with i mean i don't know about mark because he's so grumpy but bad me you know we just try to be
0: <laughs> he looks grumpy be-
2: yeah, he does. But he could be really nice. That's the thing. It's like, you know. Sure, there's yeah. A, there's a lot of pictures of him smiling. Like, whenever I post a picture of him, he's smiling. Like, that I thought. He's
0: happy when he shows up at 6 a.m. and you have a beer crack for him, Yeah, right?
2: he was pretty happy that day. So. <laughs> yeah. But we're just, you know, we're a regular band and our, our family. We're just regular people. And, you know, we just happen to be in a band that we had some success with. So, and that was it. We're really happy about having done it, So, it's not like, damn it, why didn't we do this or that, or we would have done that. Things would have been different. Right? Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, well, we, I don't you know what? You know what? No matter what you do in life, you're going to have a, a certain level of that kind of regret. Yeah, right. it's, it's, it's a waste to, to, to focus on it.
2: Yeah. I'm just really thankful of have done what, what I did because, you know, it's the kind of thing that so many people, including me, dreamed of doing. I, mean, I actually did. Right. It's just really cool. So.
0: Well, thank you very much, Gary you Lee, too. Connor. Of uh, the Screaming Trees fame, and of course the the Microdot Gnome, yep. uh, as you like to be known as. Uh, uh, just all the best, and anything else you want to promote?
2: Uh oh, Bandcamp like the Microdot uh Gary Lee Connor. It's Gary Lee Connor. It's just the nicknames. The Microdot Gnome page on sure. I'll,
0: I'll I'll throw a link in the in the show yeah. notes for this when it goes up.
2: Yeah, if you go Gary Lee Connor at Bandcamp, you'll find it. Google, you'll find it
0: this is one of the best interviews i've ever done cool. uh you you were you were candid and fun and everybody's gonna enjoy it so
2: that's awesome all right
0: and i really appreciate your time yeah. uh yeah. and uh, stay cold in texas
2: all right yeah well my the air conditioning so as long as the air conditioner doesn't go off
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. all right right on man
2: thanks a lot thanks gary all right bye-bye
3: joe dolan and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer use code pantheon for 15 percent off any fantasy points package including the all-in package with access to every article tool and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer